Good morning, gentlemen. It's uh, great to be here. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 14. Fred mentioned Ole Miss. I know that uh, Ole Miss fans are pretty excited that, uh, that the tournament matters to you. Um, I know for uh, the Tennessee fans and the Memphis fans, you're, you're maybe like I am. With uh, I'm a Florida Gator fan, and that's the first time I haven't filled out a bracket in a while because I'm just ticked off. Um, not at uh, the, the, the committee. I'm ticked off at uh, the Gators. I mean, how in the world do you go from being... Uh, you know, Final Four team to like, you didn't even get, they didn't even get an invite to the NIT tournament. Um, so I didn't even know there was a CIT tournament. Uh, I don't even know what that stands for. Uh, I'm th- grateful that our coach said, no, we'll just, we'll just take a break for a while. Uh, and he's, and is not going. Um, but it is bracket time. And, and you think about that. I have thought about it all year. How do you go, how do you go from, from being uh, this elite team for four years and then just an absolute disaster and, uh, and watching that game and games after game after game and thinking that maybe it's my problem that uh, if I watch the Florida Gators, they're going to lose. Maybe if I don't watch, they'll win. I mean, everything, all of that. Just almost schizophrenic, bipolar. Um, and uh, I have that same thought, actually, when as, as you read through the, the book of Samuel and look at the life of David, I feel like you see the, the same kind of thing. You're going to see, you know, in one instance, you see David doing something that, that clearly you go... Yeah, I get it. I get why, why he's called a man after God's own heart. You, you see it, and you go, that makes sense. And then you see something else, and you go, how in the world is this guy a man after God's own heart? I mean, he's just, he's all over the place. Um, seems uh, uh, bipolar in his, uh, his spirituality. Um, and yet that's like us, isn't it? Uh, we experience that same kind of thing. There's, uh, there's moments where the Holy Spirit working through you... Um, uh, you even, it's almost like you're outside your body and you're watching you do something. Maybe the way uh, you treat or sacrifice for your wife or your kids or maybe the way, the way you handle a conversation at work and you think, wow, the Lord's working. And then the next day, uh, you find yourself just, just in the midst of sin going, what? how did I get here? What am I doing here? Yesterday, I was seeing the God work, work in my life and now I'm here at, at this point. And we're going to see a little bit of that this morning um, just to... Remind us of where we are because there's you know, been some snow days and some spring breaks and things like that. You remember that a few weeks ago, uh, Sandy preached on uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. One of those moments where you're like, what are you doing, David? Why are you out on the rooftop? You know, why are you channel surfing at midnight? Um, thinking that you're going to find something wholesome and yet you, you know why you're out there. You know why you're on the rooftop. Um, and while you're looking, when you, ought, you, should have been, you should have been off doing your, your job. You should, have been, you should have been busy. And he sins with Bathsheba, and then Nathan confronts him. Uh, and you remember that a couple of weeks ago. Nathan confronts him with him sin, and, and David responds the right way. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. A great confession. Uh, and then we saw, you saw bits and pieces of that in Psalm 51 as well. And then last week... Um, poor Michael Davis, his first time to teach Amen, has to teach on the, the rape of Tamar, <laughs> one of the more difficult passages to, to work through. So you have uh, David's kids misbehaving in a way that, that, that for most of us in this room, if not all of us, is just absolutely astonishing to have uh, David's son Amnon uh, burn with lust towards his own sister uh, Tamar uh, to trick her. To, to rape her, and then Absalom, David's other son, B- 
being so enraged about, about what's going on, certainly even by the, the lack of discipline and response by David. Uh, David does nothing. David doesn't produce any kind of justice in his own family. And here he is. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to be the one who dispenses justice. And, uh, and he does nothing. Absalom kind of takes it, under his, his, uh, uh, takes it on himself to go ahead and do something. And so he, he tricks his father, he tricks his brothers, he tricks Amnon, and he has Amnon murdered. And at the very end of the chapter 13, last week, you see this where, where uh, Absalom has fleed. And, uh, and it says at the very end that David's, David's heart went out to Absalom. He, he loved his son, um, but we're going to see that, uh, that he didn't love his son uh, the right way and learn from that. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to read... Uh, chapter 14 first, and we'll look at, um, excuse me, chapter 15. Um, no, that's chapter 14, sorry. Chapter 14, then we'll read chapter 15 uh, a little bit later. So chapter 14, verse 1, says this, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought there from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been in mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Oh, save me, save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we might put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the anger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why have you planned such things against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. That's in reference to Absalom. You can see now that this woman has tricked him. We must all die, verse 14. We must all die and we are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises a means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to this, my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king, and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand, from the man who would destroy me and my son together for the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set at rest for the lord my king, For the Lord my King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. 
The king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let the Lord the king speak. And the king said, Is this the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground to pay homage and bless the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one such to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for the end of every year he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. And he weighed his head, the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. That's interesting. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And Absalom sent for Joab to send to him, him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See Joab's field next to mine? He has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom in his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Job, Behold, I sent a word to you. Come here that I may send you to, ask, to, to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let, me put, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Pretty fascinating story, and at first glance, you don't think you're going to learn anything from this. Uh, But we're going to see in this first chapter a restoration that leads to a rebellion. A restoration that leads to a rebellion. That's the the first point um, uh, Roman numeral one there. Uh, and this restoration, if you want to, you can put quotes around this restoration because it's not a real restoration. It, it, it looks vaguely like a restoration, but it's not really. It's not really what's taking place there. There's some major problems in this restoration that's attempted, and it really does lead to the rebellion that we see take place in Absalom's life. Um, first of all, we see in verses 1 through 3 that passivity escalates the problem. David's passivity escalates the problem. Absalom is in Geshur. He's at, his, he's at his grandfather's house on his mother's side. He's fled there. And there's supposed to be justice. The king, David, is supposed to... He's had a son who has murdered, uh, uh, premeditatedly murdered his other son. And David is doing nothing and he's conflicted. In one sense, he's a king. He's supposed to discipline his family even as he disciplines the entire nation of Israel. He's the one that hands out justice. There's no justice that's taking place here. In the same time, 
He has this heart for his son. I mean, it is his son. And so his heart goes out to him. It says at the end of chapter 14, it says at the beginning of chapter 15. And Joab sees this conflict in David, and frustrated, Joab doesn't know what to do because David won't act. There's a passiveness here. And in this passivity, it escalates the problem because Joab starts to take things under his, into his own hands because the one who's supposed to act is not acting. And this is a real, this is a real uh, challenge to us as men. Uh, there's a book written a long time ago. Probably a lot of you have read the book. The book is called The Silence of Adam. And the whole basis of the book, looking at how men uh, respond, particularly in our relationship uh, with our wives, but our relationship even, even to uh, community and life, is this realization that, that one, of our, one of our most common sins reflects what our father Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And that was, uh, when you look at the passage in Genesis uh, 3, there's, uh, there's no reason to, to believe that Adam wasn't just standing right next to Eve when she was being tempted by the serpent. And what does Adam do when the, the serpent is tempting his wife? Nothing. He stands there silent. He's supposed to lead. That's his role. He's supposed to provide a context for spiritual flourishing in his family. And there's a moment when his wife is being tempted and he does nothing. He says nothing. And that's, that's a great temptation for us as men. We're called to be people of action. We're called to be those who, who, uh, who take charge, who take risks, who provide. Uh, and, and many times when it comes to the spiritual lives of our family or of our community um, or of our marriage, we're silent, we're passive, uh, or even rebellion in our own family, conflict in our own family, conflict around us. We're passive. Um, we, and this is what David does. We see reflected in David. There's something that a father was supposed to do. There was something that a king was supposed to do. And he did nothing. And as a result, it escalates the problem. Joab thinks, i got to do something. So he goes and he finds this woman uh, from Tekoa. The reason he was from Tekoa is probably so that David wouldn't know her. And she comes with this fake story to trick David. And that leads us into this next section, verses 4 through 23, that poor counsel clouds judgment. Poor counsel clouds judgment. The poor counsel is that you got Joab, his assistant, instead of being straightforward with him, he's got this woman to trick him. It reminds you of the whole thing of Nathan a few chapters ago. Only uh, she's really just trying to trick him to get, uh, to, put, to do what Joab said to get Absalom back there. And she's going through this fake story and David gets upset about it. And right when he doles out judgment, which really isn't judgment, he basically because the woman's pleading with him, hey, make it so that they can't kill my son. He just says, okay, I'll make it that way. And then she switches it and says, okay, well, great. Well, you've convicted yourself because why are you doing this with Absalom? And even amidst what she's offering really as, as poor counsel because she's not asking for justice. She's not asking for real restoration. She's asking David to just overlook stuff. But even in the midst of that, I want you to notice something in, uh, in verse 14 because even as she's trying to say to David, hey, just overlook it, just overlook it. When she references God, she can't help but say God doesn't overlook it. Because look what it says there in verse 14. But God will not take away a life. He devises a means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So even in the midst of her saying, giving poor counsel, she can't help but reference the fact that God doesn't just overlook stuff. 
God actually devises a mean by which the outcast, the banished one, no longer has to be an outcast. Uh, the decision that's taking place here that, that's being offered is a decision to just overlook sin. It's not like the Lord. The Lord doesn't just overlook us in our forgiveness. There's an actual payment. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Well, then as the story goes on, she gets to the end of the story, and so now David has said, okay, fine. Joab, are you behind this? Yeah, I'm behind this. All right, well, then let's go ahead, and uh, I, I hear what you're saying. Let's go ahead and bring Absalom back. But he says, listen, uh, I, don't, don't have Absalom live in a house over there. I don't, I don't want him around me. I don't want him around me. Uh, I, I want him in my presence. And so you see here the, the fourth problem of this, this restoration, that's not really a restoration, is that avoidance increases hurt and anger. David is not going to have any conversation or communication with his son. And again, remember this. That David is not only a king who's supposed to uh, mete out justice, he's also a father. This is his family. His son has sinned grievously. His son needs to be restored in the right way. David is passive. David has accepted poor counsel and is now just kind of going, oh, okay, let's just bring him back. And now David is going to avoid his son. He's, he's just sweeping it under the rug, hoping it all kind of works out. And, uh, and it's building anger and hurt within Absalom. There's no repentance. You know, he's not asking David, to, I mean, Absalom to come and say, hey, listen, I did this and I'm sorry. He's not seeking that. There's, uh, there's no real forgiveness. David hasn't forgiven uh, Absalom. He just brought him back. Uh, I said, all right, yeah, you're fine. Let's just, just kind of let, let this go. And at the same time, there's no real restoration. And uh, I've thought about uh, this a lot recently. In particular, I do a lot of, of uh, counseling through our restoration peacemaking ministry. And, of course, that affects a lot of marriages. And uh, you may have seen this sometimes in your own marriage. And let me just warn you, if you haven't thought about this, that um, uh, more often than not, the real problem in, in marriages that are falling apart has begun because there was just an avoidance of dealing with the issue. And rather than working through something, just going, God, I just don't want to talk about it. Let's just live. And you're, you're living in the same house. You might even be sleeping in the same bedroom. But you're not talking about it. You're basically two roommates who happen to share a bed. <laughs> and uh, plenty of times in my marriage I found myself like that. I, I, I know there's a problem. I know there's something that needs to be worked out. I know there's something that needs to be discussed. Um, but I just don't want to deal with it. I, I, things are too stressful at work. or I, I, don't, I don't want to walk. I don't, I don't believe we're going to get to any uh, real restoration here. And I don't want to fight about it. And so, you know, I'm just going to. I'm just going to avoid it. And what's really happening is I'm, I'm actually avoiding part of Lynn. Again, she's not living in some other house, but I'm avoiding a part of her. And I think, well, I'm just going to deal with her on this. I'm not going to deal with her on that. I'm telling you, brothers, um, married or hoping to be married, listen, that, 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 road, that road leads to disaster. You spend a, a couple of years just being roommates uh, with your wife, avoiding the real issues, and, uh, and you could really be in danger of your marriage uh, being destroyed um, because it, you're going to see anger and hurt build up. Uh, and, if, and if you're in a relationship, even a friendship, where that's happening to you, you when the things are avoided, then all of a sudden there's this, these 
wrong conclusions are drawn and anger and hurt starts building up. And that's what happens here uh, with Absalom. The, uh, the anger or the avoidance increases his anger and he goes and he, it's just weird. You know, you think, you think, what in the world? This is so crazy. He, he's frustrated because Job won't answer him. Joab won't answer him. So he says to his servants, hey, Job's field's next to mine, you know, and it's got all this barley in it. Set it on fire. You're like, well, that's crazy. That doesn't seem very wise, smart. It seems so immature. But that's what happens, isn't it? It happens, isn't it? When there's, when there's avoidance, when, when nobody's talking to anybody, and somebody thinks they've got to do something rash to make it happen. They've got to they gotta get your attention. Or you've got to get somebody's attention. That's what Absalom's thinking. Listen, nobody's talking to me. Everybody's avoiding it. And so he's just got to get somebody's attention. So he does what looks ridiculous. He sets Joab's field on fire. And Joab's like, why, why did you set my field on fire? And he said, because you're not talking to me. Because my dad won't talk to me. And then that leads to the last thing we see in verses 31, and, uh, 31 through 33. That appeasement invites more conflict. Appeasement invites more conflict. There's no, really no record of justice here. I mean, you could, you could accidentally read into this that there's been a real reconciliation. But it doesn't appear so when you look at the, the, both the chapters as, as a whole. There doesn't seem to be a real reconciliation here. There seems to be David going, okay, fine, I don't want him to set any more fields on fire. Bring him here. <laughs> and uh, Absalom does the thing you're supposed to do when you come to a king. He bows down and kisses the hand of the king. And David says, you know, okay, fine, you're good. I've accepted you. But there's no justice here. And again, this is not like the Lord Jesus don't ever forget, don't ever forget the glorious truth that God has not just overlooked our sin. God doesn't forgive us by just going, ah, yeah, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of terrible at that. You know, just, I'm, I'm going to let that one go. He didn't let any of it go. Every single sin you and I have ever committed, will ever commit, was placed, God's wrath for that sin was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus paid the price. Justice was satisfied. It's very different than overlooking a sin. And it's very important for our own security in our relationship. There's no security that Absalom has in his relationship with his father. Because there's no real justice. But be encouraged, brothers. There is, there is clearly security in your relationship with, with the Heavenly Father. Because he hasn't just overlooked your sin. He hasn't avoided you. He hasn't been passive. Instead, he's, he's meted out justice onto his own son for my sake, for your sake, in order that we might be restored in the correct way. And so we can be sure that our dad, our heavenly father, is okay with us. Because we know that justice has been, has been served for our sin and the forgiveness is real. And he's willing to talk about anything. Very different than what we see here in David, which then leads to David's rebellion his conspiracy. Let's read uh, chapter 15, verses 1 uh, through the end of the chapter. We're going to see, uh, actually, let's, let's just read up through uh, verse 12, and we'll deal with Absalom, and then we're going to read the rest of the chapter and deal with David. So first of all, verses 1 through 12 of, of 2 Samuel 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say, See, 
Your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge of the land. Then the man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. I want us to see in the second chapter, first of all, Roman uh, numeral 2, a rebellion that leads to a refuge. So we saw, first of all, a restoration, which really wasn't a restoration that led to a rebellion. Now we're going to see in this next chapter a rebellion that leads to a refuge. And in verses 1 through 12, we're going to see here a, the path of a wicked heart. The path of the wicked heart. Four things you see underneath the path of a wicked heart that take place as a result of Absalom's sin is conspiracy. The first of this is pretense. Pretense. So that's uh, um, the number one under letter A, pretense. Verses 1 through 2A. What's happening here, by Absalom taking these 50 men to follow him around and sitting at the gate, Absalom is pretending to be the king. He's acting in a way that doesn't reflect who he really is. He's trying to be something that he's not. And that often what happens in our, in our lives. Certain times when we want to manipulate, we, take, we, we, we either outwardly lie or we kind of fudge the truth a little bit. Here, he's not really lying. He's just doing things that only the king does so that other people start to look at him that way. Second thing he does in verses 2b through 3 is slander. So first of all, pretense and then slander. But what I love about his slander, and even the next one, is he does it like a southerner. <laughs> if you read that passage in verses 1 through 12, he's really smooth, isn't he? I mean, he slanders the king, but it doesn't sound like it when he's saying it. You know, people come and he's at the gate, he meets them. They've, they've come to the king for judgment. He meets them out front, and he's looking kingly. And he's, at, and he's being not, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from such and such a place. Oh, well, wait, what's your problem? Oh, well, this is my problem. Oh, man, it sounds like you have a really good cause. I wish there was someone who uh, the king had appointed to meet out a judgment. Well, that's not really the truth. And he's slandering his father, David. He's, he's basically saying, David's not going to bring you justice. David hasn't appointed anybody to bring you justice. But he does it in such a smooth way. You know, basically he's saying to these people, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> You know, and, 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 and bless his heart, my father David, he, you know, I wish he had appointed someone. 
already putting this, this slander, already kind of smoothing out. And, and then it goes on in verses 4 through 6. Number 3, you see uh, manipulation. Manipulation, and the, uh, the sweetness continues. As he goes on and he said, oh, I, oh, I, oh, that I were the judge. Because I would make sure you had justice. Um, and then and he said, when anybody came forward to the gate, he would reach out. You know, here he is with all his men around him. He'd reach out and, and kiss the guy's hand, this person who's just come. And like, oh my goodness, I just got, I just got greeted by the king's son. And he's telling me my cause is right. And he's, uh, and he's saying, oh, that I, that I wish I were judge. And it says there at the very end, verse 6, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it's important for us to realize that in the Old Testament, uh, hearts doesn't just mean like we mean affections. It also means minds. So he stole their thinking. He stole their hearts and minds. He basically got them to think, man, Absalom should be king. I mean, he's really nice. He greets me at the gate. He always thinks my idea is a good one. And he wants to give me justice. Like he wants to rule in favor of me. And so here he is manipulating everybody. And he's doing it in such a smooth way. Notice how all of it looks good. It all, it all looks on the surface like a good thing. And a wicked heart, when you and I act in sinfulness, it usually isn't just outright rebellion. It's usually smooth and silky. I mean, we're Southerners, right? It's going to be smooth and silky the way we do it. We're going to look polite while we're walking around with our wicked hearts. And that's what's happening here with Absalom. And then in verses 7 through 12, number 4, we see deceit. Just like with Amnon, he goes to the king, he goes to David and he says, Hey, uh, Dad, listen, I, I, I made this vow four years ago when I was living with Grandpa um, that you know, if, if you brought me back, then I would go worship the, the Lord of Hebron. Would you let me go do that? And again, there's a plan here. His deceit even looks smooth and silky. And he deceives David. He intends to deceive the people because he's going to send messengers out throughout. He's already worked the manipulation. Now he's going to send messengers out and say, okay, listen, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then I want you to come to this place, all right? So let's, let's make sure we go there. And then he deceives these 200 men. He invites all these guests, right? And he just has no idea what's taking place. But once, once the coup is announced... There's no way those guys can go back to David. They're invited guests. They showed up. They're at Hebron, which is, which is in some senses, meant to be a coronation ceremony. So there they are. They go back to David. They're going to think, I'm going to get killed because I, I showed up here. So he tricks these 200 men into being there. And again, it's all, it all looks good. It all looks smooth. In fact, you could even look at the four things that were done. The pretense... The, uh, the slander, the manipulation, even the deceit. And you could probably argue, you could probably justify those actions if you were on Absalom's side. If you weren't looking at it from the perspective of the Lord, but from our own sinful hearts, you could justify those things. The slander doesn't quite look like slander. The manipulation doesn't quite look like manipulation. The, the pretense... Ah, I mean, you're lying. Well, maybe I'm not really lying. I didn't say anything. I just, I, just, I just got some guys together. I'm just at the gate. I just happen to be at the gate. Even the deceit. I'm going to go worship. I'm going to do some worship stuff there. 
you know, I invited these guests. I didn't lie to them. I didn't tell them why we were there. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't make them. Man, isn't that, so I thought about that this week. I thought, ah, that's at the core of my sin as well. That's at the core of my wicked heart. Not only is there a rebellion, but it's smooth and silky, and I can justify it. I can stand here and say, well, actually, what I was doing is this. Brothers, we've got to look out for that. We've got to realize that, uh, that the rebellion in our own hearts, as we, uh, as we reflect the Father of lies in our rebellion, more often than not, it's going to be smooth and silky. It's not going to look like just outright rebellious sin. It's going to look in such a way that we've already justified it in our own hearts. And we'll even attempt to try to justify it to other people. Again, man, when you're caught in sin, when you're caught in the midst of that, it's, it's crazy how it messes up our thinking. And some of this restoration stuff I've done and, and some of the uh, marriages I've worked with, I've literally had a husband and a wife sitting in my office. And they've, they've, they've on their own, I didn't call them in there. They came in on their own, right? And they're in my office, they're in a pastor's office. And they're there to try to explain to me why their divorce makes complete sense. And they believe it. And I think to myself, wow, any of us can be like that. I don't, I don't often sit in those moments and think, gosh, those, those people are stupid. You know what I usually think? I usually think, oh, Lord, protect me from thinking like that. I know I could be in the same place. I know if I don't follow you, I'm going to be in the same exact place. And I need to be careful. I need to think about what I'm doing in my marriage, what I need to do in my relationships, in my work. Am I letting some of these smooth and silky rebellions take place? Well, lastly this morning, we're going to see the response of David, and the response of David is such a blessing and a great example. While chapter 14 was not a good example for us, the last part of 15 is a great example for us. Let's read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down, to ruin, bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord my king decides. So the king went out with all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And when the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house, and all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, which by the way is my favorite name to say in the Bible, and I was pumped that I get to say it. Ittai the Gittite. That would, be, that would be my Bible name if we were in Bible class. I want to be Ittai the Gittite. And I like what he does here too. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. Shall I today make you wander about with us since I go, uh, since I don't know where I'm going? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Basically, David says, hey, Ittai, listen, man, you've only, you've only been part of my guard for a day. You don't need to go with me. Just go back. You know, be with Absalom so your life isn't threatened. 
Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as the Lord my king lives, wherever the Lord my king shall be, whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and with all the little ones who were with him. And, they, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the, bro- the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, so all the priests come out, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, I am here, or here I am. Let, me, let him do to me what seems good to him. Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace, and with your two sons, Amaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servants in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abathar, Abathar priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, Amaz and Zadok's son and Jonathan Abathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Fascinating things here in our time left. Four things. As we look, uh, letter B, the refuge for the broken heart. This flight of David is not fleeing just away from Absalom. What I love about it is fleeing towards God. This flight is a flight towards God. This is the refuge for a broken heart. Four things in this. First of all, Number one, a community of the faithful. You see in verses 13 through 23, Hittite, the Gittite, and all these people, David is surrounded by a community of the faithful, and their loyalty is astounding, as demonstrated by Hittite, the Gittite. So important when you and I are facing brokenness in our own lives, that we be in community, that we have men around us. A good friend of mine, Andy Lewis, who's a preacher in Greenville, South Carolina, one of my best friends, I remember him saying to me once when we were in a small group together, he said, guys, brothers, this is what we need to make sure of. He, asked this, he said, always ask this question. If you were to try to sneak away from God, who would notice and who would come after you? And I say that to all of you. If you were to try to sneak away from God, who would notice and who would come after you? And brothers, if you don't have an answer to that question, get an answer this week. We are not meant to live isolated and alone. We are meant as followers of Christ to live in community. That's what the point of church is. That's what the point of walking with a brother and being honest and vulnerable. We need that as men. You need a band of brothers. You need a community of faith like David had. He needed that in this moment. 
he needed, and, and God gave it to him, this community, this, these, this loyalty. And it's important for us to develop brothers. And don't just sit around waiting for it. Pursue men yourself. Be that for someone else. A man who's willing to get in somebody else's life and say, listen, I'm going to be loyal to you. I'm going to give you truth. And I'm going to stay with you to the end. When your heart is broken, you've got to have that. And as David flees to the Lord, he's given that by the Lord. Second thing we see in verses 24 through 29 is we see trust in the Lord. In David's flight, he begins to trust in the Lord. You say, well, how do you get that from verses 24 through 29? This is the, uh, the part about the ark. Fascinating. When they're all leaving, the priests, Zadok and Abathar, they go ahead and they get the ark and they, a covenant and they bring it out of Jerusalem to go with David. And that was in, in, in all times, remember all throughout the book of, of Samuel, you see that the Ark of the Covenant often is being used as kind of a political manipulation. Whoever has the Ark, that's who has God's favor. So let's make sure we get the Ark so it can be the spiritual good luck charm for David. And David says, hey, guys, take the Ark back to where it belongs. I'm not going to manipulate the situation. I'm not going to use God or spiritual words or spiritual appearances as a way to find uh, my, my own power. I'm not going to take advantage of what people might perceive about the presence of the ark with me. Take it back to the city. And then he says this. He says, if, the God, if God finds favor with me, I'll, I'll, I'll come back someday to the city and I'll be able to worship where the ark is. And then he says this. But if he doesn't, it's okay, here I am. If God wants to bring judgment upon me, if God never wants to bring me back to the city, I'm just going to trust him. And you see in this moment, David just saying, I'm not going to manipulate God. I'm not going to attempt to manipulate God. I'm not going to attempt to manipulate and use spiritual things to try to bolster myself. I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to obey God. God says that that the ark's supposed to be there in the temple. Let's leave it there. That's what God said. And I know that leaves me vulnerable to the people. I know people might not understand. I know it's risky. But I'm going to obey God and I'm just going to trust Him. And whatever He wants to do with me, He can do with me. Brothers, when you and I are facing brokenness in our own family, brokenness in our, in our relationships, brokenness in our business, uh, whenever you are facing that kind of thing going on, we need to flee to the Lord. We need to have a community of people around us of the faithful and we need to trust the Lord we need to take him at his word and we need to trust him we need to say he can do to me whatever he wants I'm just going to do the right thing I'm just going to obey him and that's what David does here the next thing we see in verses 30 and 31 is David's honesty in prayer honesty in prayer they climb up the Mount of Olives and, uh, and if you read more, if you want to read more in commentaries, you'll see a connection here between David's flight to the Mount of Olives and Jesus' walk with the cross to Golgotha, his own, David's own little uh, road to dealing with redemption. And he goes up there, he's weeping. Uh, we know that, uh, that during this season, Psalm 11, Psalm 12, Psalm 13, Psalm 22 were penned by David. Uh, and uh, you see even there his prayer at the end of uh, verse 31. He says, Lord, please 
turn the counsel of Elithophel to foolishness. And so David's being honest about his prayers. In fact, if you look, I'd love for you to look just real quickly. Hold your finger there in 2 Samuel and just turn to Psalm 13. It's a very short psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms. I love the honesty, and it's a psalm that you and I need to have in our back pocket, 11, 12, 13, 22, for these times when we are just undone in our brokenness, undone in our anger. Look at what it says. Look at what, God, what, what David says to God in prayer. Verse, uh, psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Have you ever prayed that kind of stuff to God? If you're like me, you're a little nervous to pray that kind of stuff to God. How long, Lord? How long Do I have to counsel myself? I feel alone. Where are you? When are you going to answer me? I mean, those are words that most of us, starting with me, are, are pretty nervous to pray to God, so we don't pray them to God. And what's beautiful about these psalms is they give you the words. You're allowed to. You're feeling this way? Pray these. When you're in your brokenness, brothers, you and I need to be honest in prayer. The Lord wants that honesty. You even know, those of you who have had children, you know, even when they're angry at you, you would rather them speak to you in their anger than just avoid you completely. You want to know their hearts. David was bearing his heart before the Lord and saying, I am, I'm, I'm falling apart. And in that, he was finding intimacy. He was finding protection. He was finding refuge because he was honest in prayer. And finally, in verses 32 through 37, we see a willingness to act. A willingness to act. You see, David is sending spies for the, and planning for the future. So he's running, but he's running to God. He's running with a community of faith. He has a band of brothers around him who are loyal to him, who say, I'm going to stick with you. And then in the midst of that, he is trusting the Lord. I'm not going to do my own thing. I'm going to do what God says. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I really don't, but I trust him. I'm going to put my hand in my hand. And when I pray, I'm going to pray honestly. Lord, answer me. Lord, Elithophel, you know he's giving poor counsel to Absalom. Turn his counsel into foolishness. Vindicate me, Lord, please. All these things crying out in honest prayer. And then in the midst of that, a willingness to act. And isn't that interesting? We come full circle from the beginning of chapter 14. Where do we start? David's passivity escalated the problem. He did nothing. And now, as he runs to the Lord, he's doing something. He's preparing. He says to Zadok and Abathar, listen, just go back and, and you report to me. And he says to Hushai, listen, don't stay here. Go back. You, you can turn the council of Elithophel. Be there. And, and, he's, and he's, doing, he's getting ready. He has action. He's being a king. He's being a father. He's no longer being passive. He's now taking action. Because as he runs to the Lord, as, he ref, as he's finding his refuge in the Lord, he knows the Lord is calling him to play a role, just like it's calling us as men to play a role. And so for us this morning, it's so important to, to not face conflict the way David faced it in the first chapter, in chapter 14. But instead, to run to the Lord. 
Not just to run away, not to avoid, but to run to Him, trust Him, honest in prayer, with your men, whoever they are, and then ready to act in every situation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the beauty and the power of Your Word. Thank You that we can turn to this ancient text and look at this, uh, at this story, at this history of the life of David and this rebellion in his family. And we can draw from it your truths that you've given it to us, you acting in history, looking at these real live men and understanding uh, what we need to do in order instead to have wicked hearts to in our broken hearts pursue you to find our refuge in you. Father, help us to live these things out by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.